0: Good afternoon, Storehouse. Uh, please join me in standing for the word of God. Luke 1, 31 through 33 says this, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear in your son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him to the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The word of God for the people of God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good afternoon. My name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. It's a joy to be with you on this chilly afternoon. I've got a couple of things uh, for you before we dive into our text. In the event that you didn't hear Andrew, we're gonna find ourselves in Luke chapter one. We're looking at verses 31 to 33. And so while you open or load your Bibles, let me hit you up with a couple of things. Number one, if you are new, we would love to hang out with you or simply to have the opportunity to pray for you. And so we have these Connect cards available. Fill one out, leave it in the Connect desk, and one of our staff team will get with you uh, within the week or we'll come together as a staff and pray for you. In addition to that, uh, here at Storehouse McAllen, we love God's word, which means we preach out of God's word. And as a result, we enjoy gifting God's word. And so if you don't have a Bible, let that be our gift you this Christmas. Uh, Take one with you, hook someone up with it. So those are those quick introductions. The next thing I have for you is if you are a covenant member here at Storehouse McAllen, or if you call Storehouse McAllen home, I have or I want to give you a brief giving update. A couple of weeks ago, both through the pulpit and uh, recently through email and our social media platforms and so on, uh, I gave you an update that we were praying for God to gift us for us to raise $36,000 before the end of the year, uh, covering both November and December. 26,000 of that money was geared towards closing out 2022 well and faithfully. The additional 10,000 was to serve as a catalyst to set us up in a good position as we walk into 2023. All of this is on the website. Um, As of this week, uh, you have generously given and we have raised more than $22,000 over the last several weeks. And so that's a big deal. And so we have about 10 days left in the new year. And so what is left is a little over $13,000. And so, man, as we close the year, would you continue to pray for our church? Would you pray uh, for um, continued generosity? And should the Lord lead you to give even more abundantly, do so according to him. Those are the announcements and the quick update. I'd love to just dig into our time now. If you want to talk more about that, Hit me up afterward. In the 2012 film, The Avengers, the main villain, his name is Loki, and uh, if you haven't seen the movie, it's okay, you're not missing much, but there's this one scene where Loki is in Germany, and he's working on a scheme, and part of his mission, and part of Loki's desire, is to rule over mankind and in a power play, he threatens the lives of many people by destroying the city and using this thing he calls a scepter to really intimidate people by exercising dominion over them. In this scene, if you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. In this scene, he yells at the people he's threatening to kneel before him, and once they end up kneeling, here's what Loki says. This is not on the screen, but here's what Loki tells him. Is this not your natural state? It's the unspoken truth of humanity that you crave subjugation. The bright lure of freedom diminishes your life's joy in a mad scramble for power, for identity. You were made to be ruled. In the end, you will always kneel. And shortly after this speech, an older gentleman stands up to Loki and he tells them that they will never kneel to a man like him. And Loki, in his arrogance, responds to the gentleman by saying, there are no men like me. And the older gentleman, with courage, responds by saying, there are always men like you. And then Captain America shows up and saves the day, right? This scene from the Avengers provides us with two truths. Okay, Provides us with two truths. The first is that we were created to live under authority. Mm. We were created to live under authority. The second truth is that we have a tendency to be that authority that we live under. We were created to live under authority and number two is that we have a tendency to wanna be that authority that we're living under. Three weeks ago, we began this series by looking at the series of Advent, that is, by looking at the incarnation of Jesus. That is, that leaving heaven, God enters into time and space as the God-man, Jesus Christ, and his mission is simple, to save sinners. He does so by fulfilling three offices, the office of prophet, priest, and what we're gonna look at today, king. As the final prophet, Jesus does not simply proclaim God's word, Jesus is the word of God. As the priest that we all need, Jesus is the only mediator between God and man, sacrificing himself so that we might be reconciled to the Father. And as king, and this is your main idea, as king, Jesus' kingship reveals our need to be delivered from our depravity. Jesus' kingship reveals our need to be delivered from our depravity. So let me pray, and we'll dig into uh, our time. Almighty God, uh, this afternoon, our prayer, I think, is simple, and that is stir our hearts for an affection for Jesus. We ask that you would do so by grace through conviction, comfort, and challenge. This afternoon, God, give us a heart to believe your gospel. Give us ears to listen to your voice from your word. Give us hands to worship you and serve one another. All of this for your glory and our good. Amen. Well, once more, in order to best understand the role and ministry of the office of king, we need to rewind the clocks and go back to the Old Testament for a moment. We've been doing this every Sunday. At large, we're going to consider two sections of Scripture Genesis 2 and 3, and you could just make a note of that, it's not going to be on the screen, but Genesis 2 and 3 and Deuteronomy 17, we'll look at that later on. In Genesis 2, we see an example of the ministry and role of kingship through Adam. We read through Genesis that God places him in the garden to work it and to keep it. In the garden, he tells Adam that he and his wife Eve are to enjoy one another by being fruitful and multiplying. God tells Adam that he will have dominion over the land and animals all under the authority of God's word. In other words, Adam does not exercise his own authority. Rather, he leads by serving under God's authority. In Genesis three, we see that Adam and Eve sin against God by trying to be God themselves. Rather than exercising the authority of God over the serpent, they take it upon themselves to be God. And what happens next is not only does sin and corruption and rebellion enter into our world, but kingship or rulership over the land is now distorted. In this scene from Genesis 3, the authority that Adam and Eve wanted to live under was their own. Fast forward to Deuteronomy 17, we see that the people of God in this text are wanting to be under the authority of a king. In fact, they're craving it. And the truth is, it's not a bad thing to want a king, but their motivations are misguided and misplaced. You see, rather than seeing God as their true king, they're looking at nations around them and saying, we want a king just like they have a king. We want to be just like the other nations who have other kings. In other words, they were allowing other nations to influence the way in which they were led. The authority here that they desire to be under was that of a king apart from God. To Israel, an earthly king was their answer. An earthly king was their hope. And in the following verses, this is verses 14 to 20 of Deuteronomy 17, we see the clarity of the role and ministry of a king. So I'm going to read that, and then we're going to keep going. Here's what the word says. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all nations that are around me, All right, so there it is. They want a king just like the other nations that are around them. They want to be cool like everybody else. Rather than seeing God as their true and ultimate king, they want to be like everyone else. God continues, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers. Here's the list. Here's here's the role, what it entitles or what it entails. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you you may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by not being lifted above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom he and his children in Israel. All right, here we go. When it comes to the role and office of king, uh, these individuals were called by God to serve under his authority in three basic ways. We've been doing this every week with prophets and priests, and now we're gonna do it with kings. Right? So they were called to serve under God's authority in three basic ways. The first one is through protection. They were kings, that is, kings were to protect God's people spiritually and physically. Toward the end of Deuteronomy 17, we read that they were to dig into the word of God, that they were to know the word of God, so that they would point people to God. In addition to that, they were to protect them physically when uh, in Deuteronomy, when we read that they are to not acquire many horses, he's talking about an army. He's saying, don't acquire too many horses because you're gonna want to hope in the size of your army rather than trusting in me. They were to protect God's people through the word of God and through trusting God. The second way in which they served God was by leading righteously. That is, exercising mercy and justice, knowing what God's people needed because they came from among God's people. In Deuteronomy 17, we read, bring up someone from among you, one of your brothers, because he is the one who is going to know the people their needs, and how to exercise mercy, how to exercise justice, how to administer peace, how to make sure that things are taken care of. Finally, kings were to serve under God's authority through faithfulness. Faithfulness in submission to God, faithfulness in submission to, uh, faithfulness to their wife uh, by honoring them, and faithful to Israel. <clears throat> we read in Deuteronomy 17, he says, don't acquire many wives. In other words, if you go after individuals, or in this case, women, who do not know the Lord, they will turn your heart away because they worship false gods. Each one of these responsibilities, protection, righteousness, and faithfulness, each one of these responsibilities had limitations and it also came with temptation, It came with temptation because, I'm quoting Uncle Ben from Spider-Man, right? With great power comes great responsibility, right? And so with that being said, right, God tells them this is what a king is to do, this is what a king is to look like, be watchful. If we were to consider one example, because we could look at a few, if we're gonna consider one example, this is best seen in King David. Though he was flawed, he exercised well as king of Israel. When it came to protecting uh, God's people, we see this in the example of David and Goliath, where he not only had a heart for God, but he slays Goliath and he gives victory to Israel. This is 1 Samuel 17. When it came to leading righteously and out of humility, we see David on a number of occasions waiting on God. In other words, David doesn't take matters into his own hands. Rather, he waits on God's timing. That when it came to being faithful, when David sinned, we see David in Psalm 51 repent of his sin and submit himself to God's will. See, the role in ministry of a king was to faithfully point the people of God to God who is their true king. In other words, their job wasn't to point the people of God to themselves. Their job was to point and direct and teach and serve the people to look at God who is their true hope and their ultimate king. Sadly, as we've seen in each of these offices, as we've looked at prophet and priest, kings were not immune to failure, tragedy, or perversion of this office. Though kings were meant to serve by leading under the authority of God, they chose to live and exercise their own authority over the people of God. And we can look at several examples, but for the sake of time, when we consider examples of decline and fall of God's appointed kings, we're gonna consider one, and that is King Solomon. See, unlike his father, King David, who was a man after God's heart, Solomon received one of the greatest gifts from God, and that was the gift of wisdom, and yet even when God appeared to him, even in giving him this wonderful gift, Solomon eventually wavered and embraced everything that opposed the office of king. Rather than protecting God's people with the word of God, Solomon turned away from God and turned away from the word of God. Solomon does not keep God's commandments and instead he accumulates a massive wealth beyond what anyone could ever fathom. This is found in 1 Kings 11 verses 1 through 11. In short, Solomon's trust and reliance was not on God but his resources. Rather than leading righteously by exercising mercy and justice, Solomon embraced power and wealth. And it did not end with Solomon. His son, after his death, ends up splitting Israel into two, the northern and the southern kingdom of Israel and Judah. His great-grandson leads as a tyrant, if you want to call it leading. He leads as a tyrant, killing all of his brothers so that he would assume all of the power and authority. Solomon did not lead well. They did not finish well. And rather than being faithful to God, and certainly the wife of his youth, we read that phrase in Song of Songs, rather than being faithful to the wife of his youth, Solomon embraced over, and we see this in 1 Kings, over a thousand women. Rather than faithfully holding fast to the word of God, he forfeited the word of God for the sake of political expansion, and in so doing, not only did he turn from the Lord, The women whom he embraced, the women who did not know the Lord, the women who worshiped false gods, Solomon worshiped with them. He sacrificed to these false gods. He forfeited all of this for the sake of political expansion. And in 1 Kings 11, toward the end, God tells Solomon that that the Lord was angry with Solomon. Because Solomon's heart had turned away from the Lord, the the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. So God meets with Solomon and he's giving him the warnings It's almost like an extension of Deuteronomy 17. He says, hey, this position, this uh, responsibility is going to come with temptations. You must stand firm in the word of God. You must place your trust in me. You must direct the people to look at me and my glory, not their own authority. And Solomon forfeited all of it. We read, he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice, and if this is on your notes, you can circle the word practice. In other words, God's telling Solomon, hey man, this wasn't a mistake. This is the way in which you lived. This wasn't an oops. This became who you were. You've embraced this lifestyle. That's what he means with the word practice. He goes on to say, since this has been your practice, you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I commanded you. I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. In this major example, that is Solomon, we see a man who is appointed by God over his people, and we see him exercising his own authority rather than that of God's. Now, it is here that many of us, maybe this is you, where you would say, See, this is exactly why I don't trust leaders such as kings or queens or presidents or prime ministers or pastors or deacons or any kind of leadership or any kind of appointed leader. And I get it. I'm not knocking it. But here's the question Are you any different? Are you any different? For a moment, consider the book of Judges. Now, if you haven't read Judges, I would encourage you to do so. But consider the book of Judges where there was no leader over Israel. There were military leaders who were raised up by God who helped rescue Israel from oppression again and again and again and again. But even these military leaders succumbed to perversion and ruin. They killed for personal revenge they abused their power over the people. The book of Judges highlights the depth of the depravity of Israel by ending almost every chapter with this phrase. And this is Judges twenty-one twenty-five. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So it's not just appointed leaders who are the issue. We are the issue. See, when you consider Judges, Israel's sins, include everything from turning away to the Lord, exercising their own personal authority, turning to idolatry, living in bondage willingly, destruction, and ultimately ruin. The irony is that at the end of Judges, in light of whatever kind of leaders God raised, Israel was worse off because they continued to decline in their sin. Self-kingship, you're like, man, I don't want leaders. I'm gonna be my own authority. Listen, self-kingship reveals our depravity. It reveals our depravity. Friends, we need a king. And while that may not be a word you wanna hear, it doesn't mean it isn't true. For a moment, at large, consider our country. Look at the condition of our country, of our community, of our city, whether it's concerning political leaders or the people within our city. Everything seems to be in decline. Everything seems to be only getting worse. And regardless of what you say and what the solution is, we are part of the problem. And the condition of our city, our community, our country, what it reveals is our need to be delivered. We need to be rescued. You're like, "Ah, I'm not really there. Okay, fine. Then scratch the country. I want you to look to yourself this past week. How have you tried to rule as your own king? Where was it this week that you tried to be God? How many times did you fall short? We're no better. Both examples, just like those of the Old Testament, fall short. We need a king and Jesus is the king everyone needs because Jesus is the only one who faithfully fulfills the office of king perfectly. And so now we consider Luke one. Let me reread these verses and we'll continue. Beginning in verse 31. In Luke 1, God sends the angel Gabriel to bring news to Mary, the soon-to-be mother of Jesus, telling her that she will give birth to a son and that his name will be Jesus. Here, I want to highlight two quick things before unpacking these verses. The work of God in saving sinners is both a grace of God and a mystery of God. That is the way God chose to execute his plan of redemption for sinners like you and me was by entering into our world living a sinless life and dying in our place in for our sin that is both a grace such a mystery You see, the work of God doesn't function the way we think it ought to function. The reason, in part, why we wrestle with that is because we wanna fit God in our box under our kingdom. But just like the people in Jesus' day who thought that he, as the great redeemer king, would liberate them politically, we think that Jesus is, again, going to fit that box. We still don't get it. We get it, but we don't get it. The work of God is both a grace and a mystery, yet it is full of mercy. Luke records in this section that Jesus will be called Son of the Most High. That is, looking back, he's referring to a word spoken to David by God in 2 Samuel. So we'll look at that briefly. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, this is God speaking to David, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God's telling David, hey, when your days are done, when you go to sleep, when you pass on, I'm gonna raise someone through you, and his kingdom will have no end. In other words, Jesus is not only savior, but king, and king over David. That he is better than David. So whatever you think the best leader is, the one person that you can think of, I want you to know, Jesus is better. Jesus is supreme, and Jesus is sufficient. And so when we consider all of this, when we consider that Gabriel tells Mary that you will call him Jesus, Jesus means savior. So, Jesus was sent by the Father, filled with the Holy Spirit, and fulfilled the will of the Father. See, the thing is about Jesus' mission in saving sinners, the truth is that we cannot save ourselves. Salvation through faith in Jesus isn't betterment, it's redemption. And so, as King, Jesus exercises and fulfills this role. Perfectly, and he does so in three ways, by ruling, rescuing, and reigning. Let's consider ruling. Jesus rules by protecting his people not only with the word of God, but as the word of God. Jesus rules righteously and exercises mercy and justice for his people. Jesus rules victoriously by exercising peace with his people as he reconciles them to the father. Jesus rules faithfully by faithfully pursuing and loving a faithless bride. Jesus rescues He rescues his people by entering into their world and going before them. Notice that God entering into our world as Jesus Christ wasn't him sending an army. Jesus went before us to die on a cross in our place for our sin. Jesus enters into our world as the suffering Savior who is acquainted with grief. And on the third day, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he is raised from the dead, securing not only our deliverance, but dominion over sin, Satan, and death. As a result... As a result, church, sin does not reign over us because Jesus has rescued us from our sin. Jesus has rescued us by pardoning us of our sin and taking it upon himself. There was no garbage can. There wasn't just something to throw it into. He took our sin upon himself so that we might walk in righteousness. We belong to Jesus solely by his grace. Not because we did the right things, not because we did works of righteousness, not because we met him halfway, not because uh, uh, we took the proper steps forward, but solely by his grace. And finally, Jesus reigns. Jesus reigns because his kingdom will have no end. There is no term, there is no election, there isn't casting a vote. Dynasties, earthly kingdoms, superpowers, and even self-appointed authorities like you and I all come to an end, they all fall, but it is not so with Jesus' reign. See, upon his resurrection, Jesus ascended back into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is alive and well and one day he will return to claim his bride, the church. Additionally, he will judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will have no end because he rules, reigns over all with all dominion and all glory. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You see, Loki had it right when he said that in the end, we will all kneel, but it'll be before Jesus. It'll be before Jesus. And this is echoed by the Apostle Paul. Philippians 2, Paul writes, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus rules, rescues, and reigns as a king perfectly and forever. Loki made some pretty profound statements in the Avengers about authority and rulership. So here are the questions. Is Jesus your king? Is Jesus your king? Do you confess him with your lips, but your heart is far removed from him? You say all of the right things, but when it comes to the things that you don't like, passages that make you feel uncomfortable, challenges that probe your pride, the tendency to want to uh, embrace or exercise your own authority, when it comes to those things, you pull back. You are the king. That when it comes to those things, bitterness and hardness of heart, you would say is a right rather than something that you need to reconcile with someone else. That when it comes to things that make you uncomfortable, and when your pride and arrogance get probed, you want to say things that justify your actions. You even want to say things like, Well, God's going to forgive me anyway, and so you just abuse his grace. Or you might say things like, Well, God understands my heart. That is very dangerous. Because in so doing, we're just justifying our actions so that we would be God in that moment. Or do you confess Him internally and privately so that no one would know? But functionally, you live with hope in someone else or something else. You see, the kingship of Jesus reveals our depravity because apart from His authority our self-appointed authority leads to enslavement. It leads to bondage. The kingship of Jesus reveals our depravity because apart from his grace, you and I are constantly hunting for identity, for something to give me worth, value, dignity. The kingship of Jesus reveals our need to be delivered to be delivered, to be saved from ourselves, because you cannot save yourself, to be saved from false hopes, to be saved from false idols, so that we would receive, rather than bondage, freedom. Rather than hunting for an identity, you receive identity in Jesus. So Christian, let me ask you, Is Jesus your king? Not simply confessionally, but functionally also. Where do you need to examine yourself this afternoon? As king, Jesus does not only rule and reign, but he gifts the grace of repentance to you. He has promised us, because of his work for us, that he will not leave us nor forsake us. This afternoon, repent and believe in the gospel. And if you're not a Christian, really appreciate you being here, really do. But if you do not know Jesus, then he is not your king. If you do not know Jesus, though you are understood by God, you stand condemned by God. As an enemy of God, yet He has made a way for you to know Him, to receive redemption. And that is through the suffering Savior. Jesus stands ready to forgive any sinner who turns to Him in faith and repentance. Therefore, repent of your sin and believe in the gospel. Friends, The kingship of Jesus reveals our need to be delivered from our depravity. Let's pray. Almighty God, what we're going to put on the table is the confession that we desire to be our own king. We believe that we know what is best for us when in reality, our self-appointed kingship only reveals our depravity. By your grace, however, by your grace, you have delivered us through Jesus making us new, making us yours. Jesus is not only our good God and savior, he is our everlasting king. Forgive us of our wandering hearts. Would you bind us to you by your grace? Would you seal our hearts with your word? And so, Father, as we prepare to approach your table, give us the strength of your grace to come before you humbly and confidently.